Welcome to the Tax Venue Central podcast. I'm James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome a very special guest today, one of the legendary commentators of our time. He's often called a football poet. <laughs> Peter Jury, welcome to the show. Hi, James. Thank you for having me on. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's a it's a real privilege to talk to you. Everyone listening, hope you're keeping safe and well. Obviously, the most important thing right now is everyone's health, and we're kind of recording with that in mind. But we do want to talk about football today, and we're going to talk to Peter about your career and about a lot of other different things. I've got lots of questions, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. The first thing I wanted to get to was your career, really, like where you where it, kind of where it all started, because it started in kind of the mid nineties back in the BBC. Is that that's right, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, in terms of sports reporting, it, it started at the back end of the eighties, actually. Oh. I got my first sort of chance with uh, a very well-known sports agency in London called Haters. You may or may not be aware of it, and its founder then, the, the, the man Reg Hater, was still around then and shook my hand and gave me a job and that was great but yeah i got my off the back of that my first job in broadcasting with bbc locally in leeds bbc radio leeds and i was fortunate to be there at a great time actually it was a it was a great grounding i was fortunate to be there when leeds won the title under howard wilkinson in 1992 so a lot of the work i did around that was made available of course to the bbc network and that was from a career point of view for a young local radio reporter was a was a great thing you know i i remember getting the first interview with eric Cantona uh because, because i was prepared to do it in what then i remembered of my a-level french that i've now all forgotten <laughs> then. and uh, it, you know it's great because there was yorkshire cricket as well and as a southern softy i learned a bit about rugby league but football of course was my main thing and we had leeds and at the top of the tree then and bradford and huddersfield and halifax town and i made almost well i didn't make all my mistakes i made thousands since but i, I certainly made a lot and <laughs> learned a lot then and and then i was i was in the right place at the right time when five live began as the as the media world really expanded in those early years of the 90s when satellite television began and so job opportunities suddenly were out there and i was fortunate to be if you like in the right sort of cohort for all of that so i was i was a founder member of five live and you know worked with with a lot of the the great broadcasters there had a lovely time still perhaps the favorite time of my career really there was a great team spirit then and there was a great thrill you know for someone who aspired to what i aspired to 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 push back the, the heavy doors of Broadcasting House and and feel that, you know, there was a mm. real honour in that. And then again, I guess I was just the, the, the sort of the next cab off the rank in 1998 when uh, the great ITV commentator Brian Moore yeah. was picking up his microphone just ahead of that World Cup in 98. ITV came in and offered me a chance in television. I went in time for that World Cup, had 14 years there. And then they started to run out of rights and things got a bit hairy. And so I struck out as a freelance uh, when there was no place on the team for me uh, there anymore. And uh, the last, whatever it's been, eight years or so has, has been terrific too and, and offered many, many other opportunities. Yeah. And I mean, there's so many legendary commentaries that you've done. Down the years. Like, I was trying to go through them all when I was preparing and I was like, there's so many of them. You know, I mean, you know, so many England games and Champions League, and it's, I, mean, it, I tell you what, James, it, that that's very nice of you to say. Uh, and of course, 
the same could be said to, to many, many of my friends and colleagues out yeah, there. What I, would all, what I do always say is that you're just lucky if you're in the stadium when something happens that you can articulate. And if the right words come out, fantastic. But, but it's, again, I always say this, nobody switches on the television or the radio for the commentator. They switch on for the match. And mm. so if you have an option, you don't have an option because people have their own opinions, quite rightly. You might spoil that match for someone and, and you might improve it. And if you get a great moment and the words come, then that's your good day at the office. If you don't, or if you get a great moment and the words don't come, that's your bad day at the office. And hopefully over a period of time, there'll be enough days, good days at the office to sort of look back and think, well, you know, I have my moments. And, but those moments, I stress, only come because they come and you happen to be the one who's lucky to be there. And I would always emphasize it's about the story, not the storyteller. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. I mean, yeah. Great commentary. Great commentary is always about the story. Yes. It's about the story, the bigger the bigger picture that you know, what what's really going on. You know, yeah. I mean the the one that everyone remembers recently is is the um the Roma game. That's uh yeah, that's the well, one, that, that's the one that everyone talks about right now. Well, that, that is a classic case of being fortunate to be in the right place at the right time mm. because well, for so many reasons that my planets aligned that particular night that night you will recall liverpool were playing manchester city yeah and so i went into roma against barcelona as relaxed as i ever would go into a champions league game in the full and certain knowledge that the nation was watching liverpool against manchester city thank you very much and my audience would be to put it politely niche so I was very, very relaxed about that evening. There was absolutely no chance of Roma coming back against Barcelona. I was thinking, well, listen, who's the lucky boy here? I get a good seat in Olympic Stadium, Rome. I'll watch Messi do his thing. Barcelona will go through and we'll all go home. And truthfully, all the pressure was on the Liverpool-Manchester City game. But of course, what happened that night was that Liverpool-Manchester City became a bit of an odd event. Uh, it was decided fairly early. It became evident that Roma Barcelona had legs and things were starting to happen. And so by the time that goal that won it for Roma was scored, actually most of the country had turned over. My uh, relaxed outlook remains because my mindset was of a very small niche audience. But actually the event was happening in front of my eyes. And when it happened, I suppose I just went off on one. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it seemed... It seemed to strike the right chord. But I, I've got to say to you that it was a fluke. <laughs> so, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Bit, I mean, it's just so, it's so articulate. It's, it's, it's like it's scripted. You know, it's, I mean, I guess that's the art of being a good commentator is to have the right words when you need them to, uh, yeah, to articulate. Well, the, the, the thing is that you remember that because, yes, that was a night when it came off for me. But it, the reason it's memorable is because it doesn't come off like that very often, if you see what I mean. Now, I'm, 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 not being, I'm not being falsely modest, but all I'm saying is that moments like that are very, very scarce for any of us who do this job. The ones that everybody likes, well, that's great. That is great. But they come amidst the great welter of what you would call, quotes, ordinary games or unremarkable pieces of commentary, just as it were, the nuts and bolts of doing the job. So it's, it is lovely when you get one like that, when, as I say, the planets align, there is a, there's a genuine interest. There's a great, there has to be a great story. There's a set of circumstances which set it up for you. And then the final piece of the jigsaw mm. is that when it happens, 
it's one of those nights when you get it right. And, and mercifully that night I got it right. And, and the, the line that I, again, you know, sort of little behind the scenes secret, if you like, the line that I blurted when the goal went in, whatever it was, Roma have risen from their ruins. Yeah. That, that was simply a line that came out to buy myself three or four seconds because I didn't have a clue who'd scored the goal. You know, this was a, this was a centre-half who dashed to the near post in a bit of a scramble until the Italian director showed me a close-up of him. I wasn't sure. I had a clue, but I wasn't sure enough to shout his name. And so in moments like that, all commentators will tell you that you need to find a little get-out-of-jail phrase. Mm. Um, uh, and, and that was just my get-out-of-jail phrase. And, you know, uh, it, 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 I just got lucky with it. <laughs> wow, interesting. Interesting insight, yeah. yeah. That's, uh, that's, a, that's a story I wouldn't, wouldn't have known. Well, now these kind of lead me to the question I was going to ask. One of the questions I was going to ask was, what's the biggest challenge of being a live commentator? Well, that's, that, I mean, that is interesting. People say, what's it all about, commentary? And I, I, I'm principally, you are articulating a football match. That's all. I, I think it is to, the, the aim is to reflect a football match. And you can take various views on that. You can reflect it as if through the eyes of a supporter. Maybe some say, you know, the more technical commentators would articulate it through the eyes of the players or the coaches or whatever. But on the whole, you've got to, I think, articulate it on behalf of those who are watching it. One of the best descriptions of commentary I've heard from colleagues would be to call it instant journalism, as in mm. just keeping up with the story. You know, here we are. It's, it's kind of constantly contextualising. And that's why, to be truthful, commentators can often get on your nerves as a viewer, because inevitably there are points in a normal game where the commentator is simply reminding you of what you already know. Putting it into if you if you have a game that's nil nil after seventy five minutes, it's not boring to me. Nil nil after seventy five minutes means there's fifteen minutes on the edge here. One side will win, or one side will lose, or they won't. Supporters of the two teams involved are excited. I'm not saying it's necessarily a dull game. But at 75 minutes, that's all you're able to say, because by then, we all know who all the players are. We all know the history behind it, because that was what the first half was for. We all know where we're at. And so all you're doing really is underlining the story. And hopefully through contacts and speaking to people before the game and so on, you've got enough to contribute in that regard. But it is, it is just, it's a business of storytelling. Yeah, it really is. Um, yeah. yeah, and that must be yeah, that must be a big challenge when when the, when a game is is kind of dead and nothing's really happening and yeah, it's nil nil with twenty minutes to go and you're trying to fill the space and there's not much. There's not even much excitement. There's not many chances being created by teams. You know, there isn't a team that kind of looks like they're on the verge of winning. Well, Maybe, that's, that, that yeah, that's is, a challenge. That, that is the challenge, and that that is why. For all the, the lovely, memorable moments, those are the games which justify the hours of homework you do. Because if you get 4-4 or an extraordinary story, a wonderful cup tie or whatever, actually those are the games that pass by without reference to your notes at all. It's the games that have little content in themselves where you're grateful if you've had a really good day at the office the day before and you've got enough around the game to, to pad out those moments. You know, when, when, you, when you do sit doing your stats and preparing and thinking of relevant, substantial 
knowledge to have it at your disposal around the game, you're aware that in an ideal scenario, you're not going to use very much of it. It's all of it there just in case. And listen, don't get me wrong, I've been guilty here. But, but you so often hear a commentator lurging on facts, which at the time aren't particularly relevant. And you think that's a commentator, and I say guilty, I hold my hands up, I'm not having a go at anyone else here. That's a commentator who's thinking, you know, I did a day's homework yesterday, and you're damn well going to get it because I bothered to learn it. And actually, that's not very good. What is good is to save the homework for when it's relevant, only use the facts when they are pertinent to the moment yeah. in the game. Or if it's nil-nil with 75 minutes played and the game is going nowhere, just use it to provide some sort of colourful background. Yeah, it's always interesting. I've always been fascinated with the behind-the-scenes work that goes into doing commentary and obviously like you just alluded to it the, the preparation the days of preparation like how much how much research do you have to do and how how much how much time do you spend on research and prep before the game well it's it, it's there's not a definite answer to that but i would say on average on average a match is a full day's work as in a full day prior to the match Obviously, if you're doing Liverpool against Manchester United two-thirds of the way through the season, that's a big game and it needs to be properly statistically prepared and so on. But actually, it's a game, much of whose information just builds on what happened last week, builds on what you sort of already know. It all needs to be written down. It needs to be prepared. But the challenge in that sort of a game is simply to try and think of something, and my goodness me, these things are scarce, that the audience might not already know. Liverpool against Manchester United, there's almost nothing you can tell anyone because the game yeah. is so big. But, of course, you have to have the facts at your disposal. And if, if Mo Salah scores a hat-trick, you need to know that that's the first Liverpool player to score a hat-trick against United since X. Or, and, and you yeah. need to go through all of these things. And, and as I say, these are facts that if you're disciplined and do it properly, you wouldn't use until they're pertinent. I mean, every player... This is just an example of a small fact. Every outfield player before each game who's in the squad, I go through them and make sure I know when they last scored. So in the case of a fullback who never scores a goal, you know, if he happens to score a goal, then that would be him scoring for the first time in two and a half years. And that's a worthwhile line. But if I ever used that line of that fullback when he was playing a simple pass in his own half, I'd kick myself because that would be irrelevant information wasted. So that's the sort of information you need the whole time. And it's always just in case the story demands it. But as opposed to Liverpool against Manchester United, if you're doing a game in the early rounds of the FA Cup, which involves a non-league team or a League Two team, which broadly speaking, the, the audience won't know much about, that's a really different challenge. And actually, I love those challenges. There's nothing I like more than a non-league team in the early rounds of the Cup, because for them... It's a, it's a massive deal. And, and if you can, you go and watch them train and you learn the players and you learn a bit about them. There's a whole new narrative, which is a lot more hard work, but actually is really fresh. And to learn that the guy who runs the bakery stall in the supermarket is, you know, playing at centre half against some team from League One. And, you know, to learn a bit about the humanity of the players is really good fun. I love that sort of change. Last two or three years, actually. I've commentated for BT on the FA Vars final, which is small even in non-league terms. So you get some great little community stories and, you know, learn about the mayor of this town or this village and all of that sort of stuff. And that, that's, 
I enjoy that. That's fun to throw in. And then, of course, there's preparation for a Champions League game, which is okay if it's Juventus and we've all heard of Cristiano Ronaldo. But if it's Shakhtar Donetsk or, you know, someone smaller than that, I, I did Ghent this year in Belgium. And, uh, you know, that's something to learn. There's a narrative to tell. And it all takes time. Yeah. It's fascinating. I do love those small games, actually. I mean, that's to me. That's one of the re- that's one of the ways I can you can tell where someone's a really good commentator when they're able to commentate on those games, which you know, with smaller teams, less well-known players, the stories you won't know, and are able to do a good job and make it compelling. That's well. I'll tell you the interesting thing about that, James, because they are my favourite games as well. To be perfectly frank with you, the the, the thing about that is. Because of the nature of the work you have to do on those, and they are more work intensive, you're likely to have met the people. And you can get closer at that level to the people than you can at Premier League level or higher. And that means that you sort of feel you owe it to them. You know, they, they've given you their time. You've been and watched them train. You've shaken their hands. You've met the centre half. And it's almost and, and this is their moment on television. And so you, you sort of feel a personal onus. This is, this is the video or whatever that they are going to keep forever because this was their moment on TV. Um, and I don't, you, you sort of feel an ownership of, of days like that that you don't when you're doing a game of great sort of global significance because there are hundreds of commentators at that game, loads of different versions of it. And anyway, it's Liverpool against Manchester United or Manchester City against Arsenal. And, and it's a great big deal. The, the, the games where, which are more intimate, you, you sort of take to heart, really. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I love that's, that. I think that's something of the soul of football, in a way. Yeah, well, definitely. Those, yeah. those small games. Yeah. I, I remember back in the day doing uh, the game for ITV, actually, when uh, Histon, little village in Cambridgeshire, beat Leeds United in the second round that it rained cats and dogs and we're on this tiny village pitch having climbed up a scaffold and so on and it's one of the favorite days of my career muddy pitch the postman scores the winner and i'd, I'd spent so much time learning about little histon but it was just it was a really thrilling buzz yeah yeah i mean there's a local sutton united were played arsenal a couple of years ago in the FA Cup, and I'm, yeah, yeah. I, I live quite near Sutton, and that was a massive deal for this, for this town. You know, it was yeah. absolutely it was all over the place. So those little when when you get those little towns who play the big clubs, yeah. it's yeah. Uh, it's a it's a massive deal. It's a great, it's an incredible story. That's why the FA Cup has to survive. Absolutely agree. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. agree. <laughs> I love the FA Cup. Yeah. So I'm gonna. I mean, you're probably expecting this question. <laughs> You've done a lot of commentaries in your time. What are the two or three most memorable commentaries for you? The ones that you remember, the ones that you kind of treasure the most? Yeah, that, well, that's, that's really, uh, that is interesting. My, my number one, if I'm, I, I have thought about this because people do ask this question and I give a variety of different answers. I, I think probably overall my number one favourite game ever was the opening game of the South African World Cup because it was of such great significance beyond football. And I just remember the thrill of that day in Johannesburg, walking up to a a fantastic, for me, new stadium. I had to commentate on the opening ceremony, which is always a challenge in itself. But the the ambience inside that ground, the sense of global togetherness, 
the, the almost tangible sense of the thrill that Africa had in hosting that tournament, the, the absolute certainty, and this is not me romanticizing, seeing black and white faces together and smiling and loving that day and feeling a, a united pride in what had been a horrendously divided country mm. was really, really special. And then when a young boy from Soweto, who'd grown up with nothing, scored a wonder goal for South Africa, uh, it, it kind of, that is the goal beyond any other goal I've seen that puts the hairs up on the back of my neck. So that would be number one. And, and then there's a, there's a great, you know, there's a great queue of games sort of for the, for the minor placings, if you like. Funny enough, this week I've been contacted by Fulham because ten, it's 10 years for them since they beat Hamburg in the semi-final of the UEFA Cup. Oh, yeah. Um, and I did the second leg of that at Craven Cottage. And that, when I said earlier about the small clubs and feeling ownership, and Fulham, of course, aren't that small, but they are small to be in a major European semi-final. And there was a great intimacy about that evening. They went 1-0 down under Roy Hodgson, came back at 1-2-1 and reached the final. That, mm. was, a, that was a special night. Uh, and a similar sort of thing. Playoff finals are always fantastic because, because of the drama <laughs> and, the, and the high stakes. And um, I feel a lot of affection. The, the very last club game at Old Wembley, Ipswich beat Barnsley. And I, and I think I managed to say some stuff which resonated with, with Ipswich fans that day. And that's always stayed close to me. I think back to my early local radio commentaries, Leeds United getting into the Champions League way back in 1993 in its first year and a two-legged tie against Stuttgart, which actually became three legs for all sorts of political reasons. And, and, and they were great times. I was fortunate enough to be there for the Aguero goal. Mm. You know, so... Picking one ahead of another is is almost yeah. impossible. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, I can understand that completely. Yeah. yeah, and so many big moments, you know, so many big games and big dramas. Yeah, uh, and 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 big is great, but as we've said, also small is great. It's, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's yeah. when you it's when you're there to our, the satisfaction as a commentator is when you feel that you've articulated a game or a moment on behalf of the people who are consuming it. If, you, if you've said something that you think hopefully resonates, either in big picture terms, as in you've told the complete story, or in the telling moment, you've managed to sum it up in some way satisfactorily. Those, those are great. So if, if Fulham were happy with the way I articulated their big win in that semi-final, then that makes me happy. have to be wary, of course, because we mentioned earlier that, that um, this is journalism. And journalism can't be about sort of kowtowing to the wishes of the fans and saying it exactly how they want it to be. You've got to be telling the truth. But if the truth is a happy truth and they're happy with the way it's told, then then those are what become the special moments. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and, and that's another thing. I mean, you must have your own kind of football biases, especially when you're commentating for England, for example. Like how do you, well, I don't know what club you support, but or if you support a club, even but, but how do you manage to maintain that neutrality when you're commentating on a team that you have an affection for? Yeah, you... of course. Well, there's no doubt that you can go into games in fan mode, wanting a certain outcome. But what I what I would say to people out there, knowing all the other guys, all the other contests, I can say this hand on heart about myself, and I'm pretty confident about the others as well. You do simply go into a different mode. You really do, and so. Any mm. perception out there, 
amongst fans about certain commentators. Oh, I can tell he supports them or he hates them. Or he... <laughs> honestly, honestly, I don't. I know them all as personal friends, and I'm telling you that when they pick up their microphone and start, I mean, I could, I won't, but I could list you who they all support. And there is, there's a completely different mindset that takes over, particularly with club football. And mm. you've, you've got your work cut out to make sure you're identifying the players correctly, um, saying the right names and just getting the story right. And you haven't got time, really, to concern yourself with who you want to win because you have no say in that anyway. Listen, at the end of a game, I have been known to put the microphone down and punch the air or, you know, bang my head on the table because it hasn't worked out in retrospect the way I wanted it to be. <laughs> um, over the course of the game, you would be unprofessional if you allowed that to impinge yeah. on your performance. England, by the way, is a different matter. England is a separate case. Growing up in the BBC, you know, a generation ago, the rules were very clear. Anybody who was commentating on England at any sport was forbidden from ever using the word we. England were England, and it was about being distanced and talking about England the way you talk about, in cricketing terms, Australia or the West Indies, in football terms, Germany, mm. France, Holland. It's England won, France nil, and England lead. It's never we lead. Now, I must admit that I try to cling to that, but I'd also be lying if I didn't admit that when working on England games, you don't have to apologise, I don't think, for being English. And, and in, yeah. in global terms, it's not unnatural for an English guy to sort of want England to win. It's interesting because I've done the last two World Cups for what we call in the game the world feed, as, as in the global audience, as opposed to the UK audience. So my commentary goes out to the English-speaking world outside of the UK. Yeah. You know, Af Africa and Asia and, and Australia and New Zealand and all, you know, all over the place. And, and, the and so if I happen to be doing an England game in the World Cup, in theory, it is as much for the, oppo the opposing fans as it is for the English fans. You might even argue more so. So it is important in those terms to ensure that your enthusiasm for an opposing goal is as great as it is for an England goal. But having said that, I don't think any sensible viewer around the world would be surprised to hear an English commentator being ecstatic about an England goal. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it comes, it comes through, I think, with England games. And, I, and to be honest, as, as somebody who watches those games, I, I kind of don't mind that at all. And I almost expect it very, very different. When it's a national team, it, it's, it's slightly different, I think. Yes, yeah. I think yeah, it, it's surely natural for the English to want England to win and for the Scottish to want Scotland to win and, the, yeah. and, and so on. But even so, I suppose, I suppose the wider point is that whilst sort of tacitly admitting you want England to win, it's got to remain, I think, within professional bounds. Yeah. You've still got to be telling the story sensibly. So uh, what, what I find, I'm not saying it happens very often, but, but there are places where it could happen. What I find less tolerable is a sort of, rabid partisan commentary um, yeah. on England because you know that's but listen that's a matter of taste some people want a rabid partisan commentary so fair play let them have it but uh, it's perhaps it's to some extent a generational thing it's not how I personally would do it yeah no I'm with you I'm with you I mean absolutely yeah I mean, when it goes too partisan it's a bit yeah it's yeah, not quite yeah. the same 
um, it's not quite the same uh, feeling. Yeah. yeah, it becomes supporting. If you get if you get come on England, then that stops. That's not commentary. That's supporting England. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but some people want that, so I'm not going to knock it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a matter of personal taste, isn't yes. it? Yeah. Um, maybe even a generational thing as well. Yes. So you've been working in commentary for a long time now. You've probably worked with a lot of co-commentators. Um, Don't ask me my favourite, James. I wasn't going to ask your favourite <laughs> uh, at all. Um, <laughs> I knew that was going to be an unfair question, but uh, I mean, on the different types of co-commentators, yeah, you know, where you have where you have good chemistry and where you where, where it's a bit more difficult. Have you? How do you? What what other different types of co-commentators? Yeah, you, no, that's a that's a very interesting question and a very fair one, because there are there are different types. I mean, I do a lot of work now with with Jim Beglin, who is a very good example of a co-commentator who feels it his job to be, and I think in fairness, and Gary Neville is probably like this as well, to be really well prepared to have watched the last couple of games involving the teams involved, to genuinely know about the narrative of both teams and and to let that play into his broadcast, who takes his broadcast really seriously. And, and that I think is good. The, the, the potential downside of that, is that he is the expert, as in the, the, the person who explains, the person who answers the questions why and how, just might tread on your territory, my territory. Uh, it's, it's my job to, to answer the, the plainer questions, the who's got the ball, the sort of background stuff. But that, that, So there's one type of co-commentator who is very, very prepared. And at the other extreme, there's what you might call the more personality co-commentator, yeah. Who doesn't necessarily feel the need to pick up the dynamics of the teams, but who relies on his persona, position within the game and background simply to entertain and articulate the game kind of more spontaneously, if you like. And there's space for that as well, if they're good at it. I think, I think that's a higher risk position to take. Yeah. Because, you know, you've got to know you're good to do that. And if you're not good, I think your 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 shelf life is pretty short because there are only very few people with the personality, if you like, the skill to do it. It's it's like you know, Messi could probably play without training, but there aren't many Messies, you know. And and yeah. that's the same for for co-commentators. And, and there's a you know there's a great sort of span between those two extremes, and it's very interesting working with whoever is thrown at you. You know, everybody brings something different to the party there are the highly opinionated ones and there are the gentler ones there are sort of shock jock ones who who want to find the controversy in every moment oh, yeah. are, you know <laughs> and we all know who we're thinking of and and you know and there are those who just want gently to articulate the game and it takes all sorts absolutely yeah i mean i'm a big fan of of, of jim beckler and gary neville and for the reasons that you articulated, the, you know the the amount of preparation that they do, it's very clear to see that they do that preparation, and that yes. they're well informed on what they're talking about. And well, I think that's particularly important when you're dealing with clubs outside of, say, the big six. Yeah, because because um, supporters, even in the Premier League, supporters of Brighton, Burnley, Watford, you know those those sorts of teams that are not the fashionable teams when their games on telly. They're listening, and it's a real irritant to them if the people 
broadcasting their games evidently don't know as much about their team as they do. There's often a danger that that can happen. And I think the guys who really trouble themselves to make sure they do know as much as the supporters know are appreciated for that. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, they're the ones that I, yeah. the ones that I, uh, that I like the most, uh, certainly. So, going back to some kind of game-related questions, what are the what is the most enjoyable game of football that you've seen? Oh. The, not just as a commentator, but as a as a as, as a football fan. What's the yeah? When you've been, I mean, you've been to a lot of games, seen a lot of performances. And what would be like two or three that you've that you've really enjoyed and have been really good games of football? Well, I mean, the most enjoyable football matches I've seen have been watching my sons on parks on Sunday mornings. But uh, if, if, you're, <laughs> if you're talking, uh, you shouldn't say that, you know, they're world beaters any more than I was. Yeah, best games ever seen. Wow, that's, that, is, that is a tough one. Over the course of my broadcasting career, I go back to um, some of the more peculiar ones. Uh, right at the start, when I was working for Radio Leeds, I remember covering a game involving Halifax Town who were perpetually at the bottom of what was then the fourth division. They had an away game at Doncaster. They were 3-0 down with 20 minutes to go, and they won 4-3. Wow. And, and, things, and things like that never happened to Halifax Town. They certainly didn't then. And they were managed by a guy called Jim McCalliog, who, who some people listening might remember, probably not as manager of Halifax Town, but he, he played for Scotland, actually, and um, he was a very good player in his day. He's the answer to a quiz question because he played in both the 1966 and 76 FA Cup finals. But he was a very likeable guy, Scottish guy. And uh, at the end of this game, which was a highlight for all supporters of Halifax, he came bounding up the little stand at Doncaster into the press box and said, who wants to interview me? And uh, of course, I would want to have done. But he was so overly enthusiastic about it that uh, he got there at five to five. I said, well, Jim, yes. But I said, we haven't got, even got to the football results yet. I said, can you come back in quarter of an hour? And, um, and sure enough, he did. So, I mean, that, those are the sort of quirky ones that you remember. I, I, I would point you again in the direction of uh, Leeds United's European Cup ties, that 92-3 that season against Stuttgart. And then I was the local radio commentator when Leeds played away at Rangers at Ibrox. Uh, away fans were, were admitted to that game. And uh, as the local, talk about partisanship, as the local radio commentator, I was there when Gary McAllister scored an absolute belter for Leeds in the first couple of minutes, 25, 30 yards out. And of course, as, as the Leeds broadcaster, I went berserk and was screaming away. Then I realised that the whole of the rest of 50,000 people had gone silent. And in front of me, people were turning around and looking at me. Uh, and I felt fairly intimidated by that and, and, uh, and quietened down pretty sharpish. But those two ties, in a time when Anglo-Scottish games were certainly not as frequent as they are now, when it was just the champions of one country against the champions of another, they, they, were, they were extraordinary. So there's a, there's a couple of examples of, of great games from either end of the scale. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting because I mean, you, you, I mean, obviously you'll have seen so many games and some phenomenal teams, you know, the, the great Barcelona team and Guardiola City, I suppose you've, you've got to Yeah, watch well, abs- absolutely. And I suppose I've, d- I've dug too far back, perhaps. But the, the, the thing is that they, they all come so thick and fast. And, and sometimes yeah. you forget your sense of privilege. I mean, seeing Messi tiptoeing through Real Madrid's defence in the uh, Bernabeu one night, yeah. you know, I mean, that's a wow moment. 
that is a wow moment and and you know fantastic so it, that that's why it's so difficult to to pick out a favorite because a you forget yeah. some of them and and b how is one better than the other yeah absolutely and i remember that that messy goal that was yeah moment of genius you know oh, there's so many yeah. messy moments yeah. of genius yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult to, to distinguish between them, isn't it? But um, yeah. yeah, we could all we could all list about two, at least two or three off the top of our head. We can remember. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and that's why that's why I'm not going to ask who the best player you've ever seen is because yeah. it's not really a, it's kind of a redundant question, isn't it? Well, it's a, it's a, I went through a Zidane phase, but everybody did, didn't they? I, yeah, I remember going through a Kaká phase when he was playing with Shevchenko at Milan. He yeah, was, he was beautiful. I went through a little bit of a Figo phase, but, uh, you know, I, I think I only give those answers to try and avoid being cliched about the generation we're going through now, because, you know, it's hard to argue that we're, you know, that, that Ronaldo and Messi are the best two they've ever been. I'd love to have seen George Best play. Yeah, absolutely same. Everything I've seen of George Best, he was a fantastic player too. So, um, kind of coming a bit more up to date now, what are your thoughts on, on this season's Premier League? And you know, obviously, the Liverpool team that's that's kind of breezing through all before it, kind of thing. To um, what have you? What's how have you enjoyed this Premier League season? What's been uh, your standout kind of thing? Memory, not just Liverpool, but anything from this Premier League season. Well, I, I think obviously Liverpool are standout in this Premier League season, and they have been simply wonderful to watch. And what we want, as we tell each Premier League season, is for a narrative. A really good narrative, and this year has been compelling because Liverpool have been so very, very good, and that they ran Manchester City so close and would have won any other year last season, and managed yeah. to recover from what must have been a fairly dispiriting outcome in its way to come back and and do it all again, and this time pull away, has been absolutely fantastic, and to be as far clear of Manchester City as they are. It's extraordinary because, as you've already said, Manchester City themselves are an extraordinary club. But the lovely thing about the Premier League is that there's always a storyline or two beneath the very top. Yeah. So, you know, Sheffield United, what a, what a fabulous part they've played. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Leicester City have become one of the most watchable teams. How would Chelsea do under Frank Lampard, young and fresh and different? They've been a lovely watch this year. All of that reads right down into the uh, bottom end. You know, the bottom end is as compelling as it's ever been. I saw something on the BBC website today about Norwich, which yes. who I think have been a, a lovely, exciting watch. Absolutely, that's, yeah. That's, that's a bit sort of patronising to talk that way. But they're, they're running a poll about who has been the best bottom club the Premier League has ever known, because perhaps it's Norwich. And, uh, you know, they, they've been... A compelling watch, and and if this season, you know, God willing, does get to finish, that relegation scrap with six teams or so involved is is going to be a, a thrilling storyline as well. Yeah, all of those stories you mentioned, I I resonate I completely. Yeah, um, Sheffield United have been incredible. You know, I mean, I'm a, <laughs> listeners will know I'm a Chelsea fan, so uh, the Chelsea story is very interesting for me as well, especially with all the academy players coming through. That's been a yeah. huge yeah. thing. Uh, and Leicester, How frustrated said, must those boys be at the moment, bless them. All those, all those lads at Chelsea are really on the cusp of yeah. something a bit special and they get stopped in their tracks. Billy Gilmore, 
I mean, oh my God, must be desperate to kick a football again. Just to say, <laughs> listen, I can play like that every week. But um, there you are. His time will come. Absolutely, it will. I've been watching him for quite a while and I've always been impressed with him. So yeah. he's yeah. going to go far, I think. Yeah, it's been, there's been lots of great stories in the Premier League this year. I mean, how do you think football is going to be affected by this pandemic? I mean, I know it's difficult to say because we don't know how it's all going to fall out at the moment but kind of what's your reading of yeah well i mean as you say it's it's unreadable really we're all just guessing it's obvious this to say but we are so unimportant as a football sort of entity at the moment in the context of this world pandemic that it almost feels as though you're talking about fluff just to deal with this issue but football is a big industry all of the other it's entitled to ask this question of itself my sense is that football might come out of this a little bit more modest than it went into it. And that might not be an entirely bad thing in terms of its understanding of where it, where it sits in the world, its own sort of self-regard. But I say that reluctantly because I hope that in saying it, that doesn't mean that it is going to be horribly damaged. And of course, in terms of nuts and bolts and pounds and shillings and pence, that is the real danger that some famous, famous clubs, which don't happen to be in the Premier League at the moment, might not come out of this intact. And that, for me, is a, a really horrible thought. You know, yeah. what, what we call the 92, which without Berry at the moment is the 91, could become a significantly smaller number. And, and, and I fear that that is a reality that, that, that really could come to pass. I hope it doesn't. What I would say is that if it does come to pass, and this is not to be flip about the thousands of people whose lives would be affected by that, mm. what I would say is that just as many people will want to play football, just as many people will want a football club to follow, and to a large extent, a lot of footballer communities might have to pick up the pieces and start all over again. And, you know, there could be a new sense of purpose, a, a new freshness about the way football beneath the Premier League uh, manages itself and of course there'll be questions as there already are about how the Premier League helps the rest of football and there are so many imponderables around this that you know the, the sort of big picture question is just about unanswerable at the moment but well I think there will be a new normal put it that way yeah I think I think that applies in football I think that applies in wider society culture generally that you know we're not going to go back to how things were before there will be a a different normal, a different sense yeah. of perspective, yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, things, um, and it will change. And but you're right, I, I do hope that no clubs go out of business as a result of this. Uh, I think yeah. we all do. But obviously the reality is that that, 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 that is a potential possibility. So, uh, and hopefully that doesn't happen, but we'll yeah. have to see. Okay. Uh, well, this has been really great. It's been a fantastic conversation, Peter. Yeah, um, been really, well, it's really... been really good to talk to you. I've enjoyed it. We've been around yeah. this, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to end with something a bit more light-hearted. What's the kind of... I know you've been commentating for I don't know, 20, 30 years. What's the kind of, I guess, the funniest, quirkiest, weirdest thing that's happened to you? Ooh. Yeah, good... Well... It's a funny story. Well, yeah, no, well... I mean, I remember way back at the start um, of my Champions League days at ITV, 
you know, sort of frightening moments when you're still very nervous. I remember starting Galatasaray against Chelsea. I don't even remember it. Chelsea won 5 0 in Istanbul. Um, yeah. yeah. I did that game for ITV, and that was in the old Ali Sami Yen Stadium, you know, really old time Turkish place where the fans arrived three hours before and lit bonfires and so on. And the first 10 minutes of that game I did with fans jumping on the desk in front of me. And that, that was um, certainly a great experience. That was, that was frightening. In terms of, frankly, cocking it up, I remember during the German <laughs> World Cup do, doing a game in the Kaiserslautern, again, people might recall this, between Italy and the USA. And it was a game in which uh, there were multiple sendings off. It was an absolutely chaotic game. We were three weeks into a World Cup where I'd done more or less a game a day and barely slept and was in bits. And the game, which I did with David Fleet, was a mess. It was a real mess. It included a moment when I think Italy put the ball. Italy were one nil up and scored again, uh, and I shouted equaliser. So that was uh, not a great moment when I should have been shouting two nil. And at the same time, one of the teams was down to uh, ten men, and I remember or down to nine men. I remember saying to um, David Fleet. You know, David, can you tell us what formation they're lining up in now? And he said, yeah, I think they've gone to what we would call a 4-3-2. And I said, sorry, David, that's one too many. <laughs> You're going to have to lose one. And, and that was just sort of um, illustrative of, of a game that for the players and certainly the English broadcasters that night went um, off the tracks. Wow. Interesting. <laughs> can happen. <laughs> in fact, My, often happens. <laughs> I love these little stories that people don't know that kind of a bit quirky and funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it's been an absolute privilege to have you on. Thanks for being so open and honest and sharing so much. Um, well, thank, been, thank you. I've, it, it's been lovely to be part of your series, so I, I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Yeah, um, and thank you for listening, everyone. <laughs>